sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. And the second type of speech is foretelling. It is speaking about the things that are to come. And the goal, of course, is to influence positive change once again. Now, in terms of frequency, Cameron, you're going to see an image there of a pie chart. Um, That's going to get you caught up to where we are. Walter Kaiser says that foretelling makes up two-thirds of prophetic writings, and foretelling makes up a third. So we're going to talk about this foretelling aspect of prophecy, but the thing we need to know from the very beginning is that we are talking about a smaller portion of an awful lot of what the prophets do and write, despite the fact that we think everything that they do is simply telling about things to come. Now, under this category of foretelling, I want to break it into three subcategories. And these are for helping us to understand, but they're not specific categories. Things will overflow and mix. But the first kind of subcategory of foretelling is warning. And this is the most common type of prophetic material that we will find are words of warning. And the words of warning speak of what will happen unless the people change their ways. This is often what's known as conditional prophecy. Here, the prophet is not making a prediction about what's happening. He is simply warning them that if there is not a change, the outcome will be certain for the people. But if there is a change, that outcome will itself change. An example is Isaiah 7, 9. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. And the question for us becomes, are they going to stand firm? And if they stand firm, then these things will not come to pass. But if they do not stand firm, then they will. It would be like you leaving on a Saturday morning and you tell your daughter, don't forget to study for your exam. You're gone for a good part of the morning. You come back and you say, how'd the studying go? And you said, oh, I forgot. And said, you're going to fail that exam. Now that's not a prophecy in terms of a prediction of what's going to happen. It's a warning. And the warning is, unless you study, the outcome is going to be certain. You will not do well. So in addition to... Um, a warning, there is a prophetic uh, prediction, which is what most of us commonly think of when we think about prophecy. The prophet here is talking about things that will come to pass. It is history that is spoken before it happens. An example of this is Isaiah 7-7, speaking of the invasion of Aram and Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Regardless of any other circumstances, this outcome is clear. So there are predictions, there are warnings, and the third subtype is promise. A promise is a long-term commitment and intention. A promise is something that God guarantees towards an outcome, but the pathway to exactly how God's going to bring about that outcome is uncertain to people. So a promise is going to blend things known and things that are mysterious. The known and the unknown come together in a promise through the nature of God and the relationship with his people. And there's two parts about this promise. A promise can be fulfilled in the manner that's like the infomercial that says, yes, and here's more. The irony of the promise is that it will become clear that a person assumes that what God is promising is this. And as it comes to pass, God actually has been promising from the very beginning something that is greater and exceeds the expectations of people. But the promise can also work in this way, where the hearers believe that the promise is indicating that X will happen, 
But X simply stands, stands as a, a type of something that God will in fact do Y, and Y will always be greater than the, the initial promise. And I know I'm going to need to illustrate that, so let's look at Isaiah 2, 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may learn his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And these promises about Jerusalem, people believe is promises about the Jerusalem that you can find and locate on a map. This is the X. They believe all the promises about Jerusalem will be fulfilled in. And yet we come to find that it is about something even greater than Jerusalem. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we come to realize that God's promises are beyond even what people had expected God to do. And, and to help us understand how prophecies will play out and how they will work, I want to introduce a framework that's at least useful for me, and I hope useful for you. Uh, Christopher Wright says that as we look at the prophecies, we need to look at them from the perspective of three horizons. Horizon one is the age of Israel or Judah. These are things that will be fulfilled in those days and in those times. Horizon number two is the Messianic age, the, the prophecies that speak about a time to come when the Messiah comes, where these things will be fulfilled. And the third horizon speaks of the age to come, something that lasts, uh, that extends to the very end of our time. And so we're going to look at each of these in their relationship. So horizon one, the, the near future, the age of both Israel and Judah, the predictions that these things would happen in the immediate future of Israel. Isaiah chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 I think can serve in this way. I'm not going to read the entire text, but what happens is that Isaiah begins by getting out a tablet and he writes this complicated name on the board, Malhershal Hashbaz. And then he has that name there and it is witnessed by others and the name itself means quickly and haste. Something is going to happen quickly and soon. Shortly thereafter, his wife conceives the prophetess and nine months later, I'm just guessing on that, nine months later, a baby is born. And of that baby, it is pointed to the fact that he is given the name what? Malher Shalahashbaz. The name that was written on the board is now the name of this baby. And that baby is to indicate something. Before the child knows how to call my, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. This is this horizon one prophecy. It is completed in the days and in the times of Israel and Judah. So then let's move on to horizon Two, the age of the Messiah. Now, there are a couple of ways that a prophecy can touch a horizon two prophecy. Number one, it can skip horizon one and point directly. So, so they're saying this is not a prophecy that we will expect to be in any way uh, fulfilled here, but it is only something that is being reserved for the, at the age of the Messiah. But the second option is that a prophecy can be fulfilled in horizon one, and then it can be carry for, carried forward and fulfilled in a greater, more perfect fulfillment in the second horizon. So I want to illustrate how this um, aspect could work. If you look at this graphic, you'll see um, a number is written 128 divided by E980. And don't spend the rest of the sermon trying to solve that math equation because I don't even think it's true. But then if you look at the next graphic, what it is, is it was folded over. And as you unfold it, it says the words, I love you. And the question is, well, which is, what did it really say? Did it say the number or did it say, I love you? And the answer is, it said both. 
And in a similar way, we can have a prophecy that touches on a horizon one, is fulfilled in horizon one, and then it is fulfilled in a greater way in horizon two. Last week, I mentioned that I believe Isaiah 7.14 was initially a horizon one prophecy. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7.14 to ask the question, how might we know if it's both horizons or just one? So let's start with, there's these two things that people look at to decide whether it can be both. And the first is the name Emmanuel, which we know means what? God with us. And some people will say that's too divine, that there, there could be another person whose name means that God is with his people. They can't see any way in which this would ever be fulfilled in the first level. But the context itself seems to dictate that this serves as a sign that has to be fulfilled in horizon one. Look at 714 of Isaiah. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. In order for it to be a sign, it has to be something Isaiah witnesses. It has to be something that Ahaz witnesses within their lifetime. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, it indicates that Emmanuel will be present when the king of Assyria attacks Judah. And so it seems like there is a horizon one prophecy. And the question becomes, is there a way that in one sense there is someone who is born that represents that God is with his people? And then horizon two, there is another that is born and does not simply represent that God is with his people, but through that child, God is himself present in his people. I think it's possible. The second factor people look at is what happens with the Hebrew word Alma, which is translated either as young woman or virgin. Now, even that statement I made, I know makes some people angry. Because there's this recognition that we know from, from the New Testament perspective, we know that this is speaking of a woman who is a virgin who is going to give birth. The question is why Isaiah would use a word that is ambiguous enough that could be linguistically translated either way. Is it not possible that there was a child that was born to a woman who at the time of the writing was not married, who had a baby, who served as the fulfillment in that first horizon? Then it becomes a representation of a greater, more significant prophecy, not of somebody who's going to have somebody who represents Emmanuel, but of somebody who is going to be Emmanuel. And when that birth happens, it is going to happen through a virgin mother. Matthew makes it clear that the prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the messianic age, that it points to Jesus. But the question is, can something be understood to mean one thing, and then when the picture is fuller, be understood to mean something else? One way I want to illustrate this is an experience I had this week as I was walking on my way to work in the neighborhood and I saw a car there and the car had a bumper sticker that I've edited for language sake that says, don't worry, my driving scares me too. And the reaction is the reaction that all of you just had. It's supposed to be humorous. But I will let you know when I saw that bumper sticker, it was a sobering feeling. Because the bumper sticker is on a car that replaced the previous car that the previous teenage driver used to drive, who in the fall of this year got in a car accident and almost died. Spent two months in the hospital, two months in rehab, finally got home, finally got a new car, and she puts the bumper sticker on, and it doesn't make me want to laugh. My driving scares me too, because she had a near-death experience. Now, what we realize is from the perspective of what has happened and, and, and what we experience of history, we realize there was something deeper 
to the meaning of that bumper sticker. Something that was initially humorous becomes very sobering. So yes, things that are said as they are played out in history, we come, can mean that, realize that they mean more than we ever understood that they meant. Now, let me be very clear about this. God sees the entire spectrum of history. And God knows exactly what is going to happen on all horizons, but we as the humans sometimes can miss the fact that we think that God already gave us everything he promised and then God's going to later show us he has more in store and more in mind. I think something similar is happening in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading a text that we're well familiar with, Isaiah 53. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Isn't he asking the question using the language of this sermon, is this a horizon one fulfillment or a horizon two fulfillment? Are we to expect that this person in Isaiah 53 has already lived or should we continue to be expecting him to come? And it becomes very clear that Isaiah 53 is understood to fulfill in horizon two. See, we tend to think of the Old Testament prophecies as these really simple prophetic arrows that that everybody would be looking at this and everybody would know exactly when all of these sort of things happen. But the witness of the New Testament seems to paint a different picture. Ephesians 3, 5 through 6. And if you want to write down Colossians 1, 26 through 27, it's another text that illustrates this well. In the former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. There are things about what would happen with with all the whole witness of the Old Testament that the people are saying, I don't know exactly how this promise is going to happen. I don't know how God's going to play out. In this particular case, it's about the Gentiles. How is that going to come to pass? And we are told in Scripture that God kept it as a mystery. A mystery that He would only reveal in a later time, which He revealed by His holy prophets. It was kept hidden. What about the Messiah? Did people carry around a checklist that is the Messiah like an Uber, if you've ever ordered an Uber and you go and it's got your license plate and you know that's yours? Was, was the Messiah the same way that there was never any doubt about who the Messiah was? Let's look at, let, let's look at Luke t- chapter 24. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. He's there with a, a, a guy named Cleopas, another disciple. And they're talking to Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus. And here's how the conversation goes. They say to Jesus, Luke 24, 21, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. I want you to pay attention to two parts of this scripture. Number one, we had hoped. Past tense. Well, why would they say we had hoped that he was the one and what would they be referring to that says he cannot be the one because it's the fact that he suffered the fact that he died on a cross, that they think that means you can't hope in him because they had this image of a Messiah who was victorious, a Messiah who would conquer, a Messiah who would vanquish all the Gentiles. And so they say he can't be the Messiah because he suffered and died. Now, from our perspective, doesn't that seem silly? How many times have people read Isaiah 53 and we say, we know this is about Christ. We have the curse of knowledge. We, from the perspective of the cross, can see exactly how this plays out. 
New Testament scholar R.T. France says, the Messianic figures, which occur most prominently in the sayings of Jesus, are among those least emphasized in latter Jewish thought, particularly the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In other words, R.T. Uh, France, who I'm trusting has read more than I've read of, of, of all the documents that are out there around the time of the New Testament, people saying, here's what the Messiah is going to look like. Here's what he's going to do. And how frequently they happen. He says at the very bottom of the frequency of the things they're expecting is Isaiah 53. We don't know. He's going to come. He's going to suffer. That's why Jesus has to make it clear to them. Second thing we need to notice is they say it is now the third day since these things took place. In other words, they're like three days. Three days means it's, it's over. There, there's no chance, no opportunity for redemption. And the irony again is what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 15, 4. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why didn't they say it's been three days just like the prophecies we've been looking forward to and expecting? How did they miss this? Returning to Luke 24, Jesus has to teach them. Was it not necessary? Necessary means it's an obligation of Scripture. It's required by Scripture that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the Scriptures. See, it was there, but somehow people missed it. The pieces were all there. And they didn't realize that it was pointing to this one who would die on a cross. And yet when Jesus goes, beginning with Moses, through the prophets and the law, and Jesus is showing them how all of these things have the whole time been pointing to him, but it's not until he interprets to them that they get it. I now see what has been spoken about in the days of old. Look at a conversation a little bit later with the disciples. Luke 24, 44 and following. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He needed to show them how the scripture was pointing to them. And he said to them, thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Jesus needs to open their minds. It's their bumper sticker moment where they always thought it was talking about something else. And then Jesus helped them to understand exactly what not just the prophets are talking about, but what the law is talking about and what the Psalms are talking about. Which means if you open your Bible to the Old Testament, it will tell you about Jesus. You know, there's some people in the church who think we don't need the Old Testament. Ever, ever seen Bibles that don't even have the Old Testament? And Jesus is saying, hey, how are you going to understand me if you don't learn first to understand these words in the Old Testament? Now, let's return to our discussion about horizons. And we do need to be clear that there are prophecies that skipped from horizon one and talk directly about horizon two. One example of this is the text we read earlier, Isaiah 9.6, for a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one of those, promise, those promises ever since the very beginning, they knew had to be talking about something future to come. But it also had a mystery because it has some confusing elements. It says, first of all, for to us, a child is born. This is going to be a human baby. 
And like, okay, yep, all right, got that. There's going to be a human baby that's going to be born. And then look at the language. He will be, God, he will be mighty God. As you look at this language, there is no doubt that this is divine language. Mighty God, El Gibor. El in the book of Isaiah is only ever used in reference to God. The phrase El Gibor in the Old Testament only ever refers to God. And so they're sitting there and they're wondering, a boy is going to be born and he's God? Hmm, how's that going to work out? How's that going to happen? We know. But they wondered, how is God going to fulfill this promise. This prophecy cannot be referring to anything in horizon one. It must be reserved for horizon two. Now, as we conclude, let's look at horizon three, the age to come. And once again, you can have a prophecy that touches in horizon one, it touches in horizon two, but it's reserved for its fulfillment in horizon three. I think Isaiah 1.18 is one such passage. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This means that God is going to undo the the effect and the implication of sin. And in that first horizon for, for Israel and Judah, did God have a way for them to deal with their sins? Absolutely. Through the blood sacrifice of animals. That is then made better in the coming of the Messiah who then gives himself as a means whereby sins can be forgiven. And yet while sins are forgiven, they're not completely eradicated. They're not completely done away with. That does not come until when? Until the age to come. So we're experiencing the fruit of that prophecy, and yet we're awaiting its full fulfillment. But there are some prophecies that it seems very clear. They skip horizon one, they skip horizon two, and they point us directly to horizon three. Isaiah 65 is one such passage. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. That promise is repeated. And I'm going to read now Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And see if you see anything that sounds kind of familiar. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will deal with them as their God. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. Emmanuel. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. One of the things that the prophetic material wants to be sure that we never miss is that we know how things end. There are some things... We don't know exactly how they're going to play out. Unless you go to this seminar and somebody tells you exactly how it's all going to play out and exactly who the Antichrist is, the rest of us, the the mere mortals of the world, simply know this. In the end, God wins. God has made a promise to see his new heaven and his new earth come. And those words of prophecy mean the same as they did to the people who they were first given to. 
They were there to influence change. And the question is this. When God comes to restore his new heaven and his new earth, what will happen to you? What will happen to me? Will I find myself living under the name of the Messiah? Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Have I decided to follow him? And if I have decided to follow him, when he comes to usher in this final age, I too will be invited and included in that. But if I reject the Messiah, by whom God promises to bring all of these things, then these words of prophecy should be a word of warning to us. A warning to ask us, are we with God? Are we against God? If you've not yet encountered the God who makes these promises, there's an opportunity in just a moment to meet myself or one of the elders in the back. I'd be happy to talk about where you're at in life. Or, or maybe you've realized, I've been living my life in a certain direction, and, and, and these things being true, I need to reorient my life. I need to redirect it. If you have any kind of a need in a minute, I invite you to come during this song. But a word of blessing as we finish. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we leave from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So if you have any kind of a need, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this song together.